Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez brothers, a Court TV mystery. Available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we're going to begin a series called Star Wars, featuring stories about movie stars and their adventures and experiences during times of war. Our first eight episodes in this series will focus on women in Hollywood during World War II. Hollywood was extremely active in the war effort in a number of different ways, which this series will explore. But today, we're going to talk about Hollywood's importance as a place, a locale in the collective imaginary, sure, but also a physical, residential and commercial community spilling out of canyons buttressed by hills and dissipating into the vast, diverse sprawl of Los Angeles proper. After Pearl Harbor, Los Angeles was the main point of departure for soldiers heading to the Pacific. Young men would leave their hometowns or bases and land in L.A., where they'd often have a couple of days before sailing into a war zone, often with very little life behind them and, of course, with no way of knowing how much life they had ahead of them. So these last days on land were often treated like they were last days on Earth. Los Angeles in the early 1940s was an exciting place to live like there was no tomorrow, not least because of the proximity high cast off by what was then the glamour capital of the world. During World War II, Hollywood stars and craftsmen were legitimately patriotic. They wanted to do their part, and the publicity arm of the industry wanted to make sure that the nation knew that Hollywood was doing its part. The industry was constantly plagued by protests and bad press, even as moviegoing had become the number one leisure activity in the nation. Actor John Garfield, who had been rejected from the military due to a heart condition, came up with the idea of creating a place in Hollywood where soldiers could go and be welcomed by Hollywood stars and have the best night of their lives before shipping out, all in front of photographers. 
images taken at that nightclub, which was called the Hollywood Canteen, would serve multiple propaganda purposes. They would show an image of Hollywood as not uppity and sin-driven, but as a genuinely, generously patriotic community, like a small town where the elites in diamonds and furs cheerfully serve coffee and pie to the working folks. These images would also send the message to young men that joining the fight could earn them a chance to spend a night in the presence of Hollywood royalty. These images would be enlarged and widely disseminated thanks to a star-studded fiction film about the nightclub produced by Warner Brothers in 1944 called, what else? Hollywood Canteen. The Hollywood Canteen was Garfield's idea, but legend has it that it was Betty Davis who made the Hollywood Canteen happen. Betty Davis was the biggest female star in Hollywood in the early 1940s. Less than a decade into her film career, she already had two Oscars. She was probably the first female character actress in the shell of a movie star. She played driven, often single-minded and self-serving women who fought for what they wanted, sometimes in defiance of ethics or the law. In the last years of her life, she would lament that the real Betty Davis had been eclipsed by the characters she was so good at playing. As she put it, all those bitches I had to take everywhere with me. And it's true that her life and career would encompass a lot, and a lot of contradictions, much more than could fit comfortably with any neat star narrative. She sued Warner Brothers very early in her career, and only later became such a fixture of that studio that she became known as the fifth Warner Brother. She had four husbands and a lot of affairs, and yet claimed that no man ever really understood her, and that only the Betty Davis impersonators ever really tried. She pioneered an image of strong femininity, while also carrying on well-publicized catfights with other actresses, including Miriam Hopkins and Joan Crawford. She was notoriously stubborn and proud, and yet in 1962, just before starring opposite Crawford in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, an aged, out-of-viability Davis took out an ad in The Hollywood Reporter announcing that she was looking for work. There are a lot of chapters in Betty Davis's life that we could turn into entire episodes, and maybe someday we will. But today we're going to focus on telling the story of how Betty Davis became the face of the Hollywood canteen and thus the female movie star face most prominently associated with the idea that Hollywood was fighting World War II on behalf of the nation, and vice versa. Davis's memoirs and biographies generally hew to the highly propagandistic narrative of the canteen, which was publicized while it was open from 1942 to 1945, that this alcohol-free dance club was a conflict-free zone where men from all walks of life, and importantly, all races, were honored for their service by stars who gave freely of their time and labor without losing an ounce of their glamour or comportment. But just as Betty Davis's own complicated life and career is difficult to contain in a simple bio, the story of the Hollywood canteen contains multitudes that don't fit into the official story, including racial tensions, a murder, and an FBI investigation which would lay the groundwork for the communist witch hunts of the 1950s. Join us, won't you, as we tell the story of Betty Davis and the Hollywood Canteen. Born Ruth Elizabeth Davis, Betty took to calling herself Betty with an E, thanks to a suggestion from a friend who had been reading Balzac. 
Betty admitted, It wasn't until some time later that I read the novel and found out Monsieur Balzac's Lisbeth was rather a bitch. Oh well, too late. When she was 16, Betty went with her mother to see a production of Ibsen's The Wild Duck, starring an actress named Peg Entwistle as Hedwig. Entwistle became the young Betty's idol, not just her inspiration to become an actress, but a specific model that the teenage future star saw herself in. Eight years later, a short ways into Betty's own Hollywood career, Peg Entwistle committed suicide by jumping off the H in the Hollywood sign. A star on Broadway, apparently she had moved to Los Angeles from New York at the height of the Depression, and after most of her part in her first film ended up on the cutting room floor, she was unable to get a studio contract. Entwistle was immediately taken up by the press as a symbol of Hollywood's power to lure the ambitious and vulnerable and crush them with its disappointments. Entwistle's death hit Betty hard. They were the exact same age, and though by 1932 Betty did have a studio contract and was working regularly, Hollywood wasn't exactly bending over backwards to make her feel at home. In Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, the faded silent star Norma Desmond would lament that back in her day, the stars had faces. And she wasn't wrong. In the silent era, stars were made by their faces, by their beauty and their bodies and their ability to use them to communicate without words. But when talkies started to take over the town business, a lot of those faces weren't able to make the transition to speaking roles. Betty Davis was part of the first wave of stage performers who were brought out to Hollywood from New York. At 22, Betty was hardly a glamour girl. When she first arrived in Los Angeles in 1930, she waited at the train station for someone from Universal, the studio that had brought her out from New York, to pick her up. Nobody came. When she finally made it to a hotel and called her ostensible employer, they insisted, but we did send someone to pick you up. The driver said there was no one at the station who looked like an actress. After she started making pictures, Betty was frequently told that her talent wasn't enough. Carl Lemley, head of Universal, reportedly complained, What audience would ever believe that the hero would want to get her at the fade-out? Universal's efforts to tart her up didn't do much good either. Very early on, Betty was sent to test for the first film to be directed by a cousin of Carl Lemley, named William Wyler. In the costume department, they put Betty in a dress that she knew was too tight and too low-cut, She complained, to no avail. And then she appeared before Wyler, who looked her over and said witheringly, What do you think of these girls who show their chests and think they can get jobs? She didn't get that job. Betty was something of a late bloomer. She lost her virginity on her first wedding night to Ham Nelson when she was 24. And though she worked constantly, she didn't really break through as a movie star for years, until after she had been dropped by Universal, signed by Warner Brothers, and loaned out to RKO. The so-called Big Break came in her 22nd film, released in 1934, Of Human Bondage, in which Betty played Mildred, whom she described in her memoir, The Lonely Life, as the first leading lady villainess ever played on screen for real. In the very next line of that memoir, Betty Davis puts the impact of her performance in this film in modern, monumental terms. I was the female Marlon Brando of my generation. 
Betty also claims in The Lonely Life that the fact that she lost the Best Actress Oscar that year to Claudette Colbert and It Happened One Night was a scandal of such epic proportions that it forced the Academy to employ independent accountants to count Oscar ballots going forward so that no one else could be so robbed. The following year, Betty won for her role in Dangerous as a nutty alcoholic actress whose irresistible something caused more than one man to destroy themselves trying to help her. Betty sniffed off the honor as a consolation prize for having lost her rightful Oscar to Colbert. That same year, Betty co-starred in The Petrified Forest, the movie that would make Humphrey Bogart a star. But Betty Davis wasn't looking to help anyone else become a star. She hated most of the movies she was being forced to star in, and she became convinced that Warner Brothers was deliberately putting her in crap films in order to weaken her star value and make her easier to control. In breach of her contract, she agreed to go to England to make two films, and ended up taking Warner Brothers to court in the UK in an effort to get out of her contract. Her case failed, and Davis was forced to return to Hollywood and to WB with her tail between her legs. She desperately wanted to play Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. She would say later that everyone knew she was so perfect for the part that it was absolutely absurd that she didn't get it. But David O. Selznick had asked Warner Brothers if they could borrow Betty for the film, except that Selznick wanted Errol Flynn for Rhett Butler, and Betty thought that was a terrible idea, and she said it was either Errol or her. Betty lost that standoff. And as if to underscore how little power she had after the failed trial and her failed gambit for Gone with the Wind, in the first movie Warner Brothers actually assigned her to after she returned from England, she played a mafia hooker. But her next movie after that would turn everything around. Betty Davis was given what she felt was her best part since Of Human Bondage in a Civil War-era melodrama called Jezebel. Jezebel was to be directed by William Wyler, the same William Wyler who had not cast Betty back in the day, based on his assumption that she was trying to open doors with her tits. Wyler didn't remember the incident, but when she brought it up, he promised Betty that he had grown up quite a bit since then. And so had Betty. In William Wyler, Betty Davis found the director she had grown to long for, a man with a real vision for how to put a story on screen, who still trusted actors to act. When Warner Brothers tried to remove Wyler from the picture because he was running behind schedule, Betty put her foot down. She said, if he goes, I go. He stayed. And he and Betty, who was still married to Ham Nelson, fell in love. Betty thought of Willie, as she called him, as her perfect match. Both were workaholics and perfectionists, And Betty heavily implies that their on-set back-and-forth was a kind of foreplay. At Jezebel's premiere, Hedda Hopper confronted Betty and tried to get her to admit that she was having an affair. Not with Wyler, but with her co-star, Henry Fonda. I could tell you were in love with Henry Fonda, Hopper said to Davis. In the close-ups, I could see it in your eyes. But the gossip columnist didn't know that Henry Fonda hadn't even been on set when they were shooting Betty's close-ups. He had gone to be with his wife, who was giving birth to Jane Fonda. The look of love in Betty's eyes had been directed at William Wyler, who was standing behind the camera. At the end of the Jezebel shoot, Betty found out she was pregnant. She didn't tell Wyler. She didn't want him to feel forced to marry her. 
she wanted him to propose free of all responsibility. She had an abortion, and the affair continued. Around this time, Betty Davis also had an affair with Howard Hughes, which we discussed briefly way back in our episode on Katherine Hepburn. This affair ended when Betty's husband hired a detective and caught Betty and Howard at their secret rendezvous spot in bed together. Betty paid Ham to keep quiet and let him divorce her under the grounds that she, quote, read in bed and neglected him for work. This only added to Betty Davis's growing persona. She was a difficult woman who played difficult women. Director Michael Curtiz allegedly referred to her in his idiosyncratic English as the flea in the ointment and a no-good sexless son of a bitch. Betty Davis might have bristled at being called a son of a bitch. Betty Davis was the first to acknowledge that she was famous for being the bitch. She was beloved by her fans for bringing to life the average woman's fantasies of steamrolling through the world, doing anything and everything she wanted completely selfishly, with no husband or father or kids or concern for propriety holding them back. Her characters weren't exactly rewarded for their freedom. Often they died at the end of the movie. Best case scenario, they walked off alone, having not landed their man. But that was an incredible thing to have an actress who specialized in playing women who defined themselves, for better or for worse, and weren't defined by the romantic conquerors. Betty Davis's own love life was largely unsatisfactory. During the last decades of her life, when she was basically on a constant retrospective tour, the only man she spoke of with any respect was William Wyler. She'd tell biographer Charlotte Chandler... Willie was the perfect man for me in every respect except one. He didn't want to marry me. Wyler did want to marry Davis, enough to extend a proposal. Betty wanted desperately to marry him. But she worried that if she betrayed that desperateness, Willie would lose interest. She felt like Willie was the kind of guy with whom she'd better play hard to get. She told him she'd think about it. And she thought about it for too long, and he married someone else. She would later say, I'm the one who didn't get the man, which is the more interesting character on the screen. But in real life, sometimes I wish I could have just been the girl who got the man and kept him. She married four times, divorced thrice, and was widowed under murky circumstances when her second husband, Arthur Farnsworth, dropped dead suddenly while walking down Hollywood Boulevard in August 1943. Later... Betty admitted that Farney, as she called him, had fallen and hit his head a few days before his fatal collapse. Rumors would persist for decades that that first fall happened because Betty had pushed him. It seemed like something a Betty Davis character would do. By 1941... Davis was Warner Brothers' reigning top box office star. That year, she was elected as the first female president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And her first challenge as president was to figure out how Hollywood could best celebrate itself as the world around it went to war. After Pearl Harbor, for the first time in the award ceremony's 13-year history, there was talk of canceling the Academy Awards altogether. Was it unseemly for Hollywood to pat itself on the back during a time of national insecurity? 
Or must this show go on in order to show that life would go on in spite of the efforts of the Axis powers? As Academy president, Davis believed the latter, but she thought a certain recalibration was in order. Instead of presenting the awards at a private banquet, as had been customary to that point, why not hold the ceremony in a theater, sell tickets to the public, and donate the whole of the proceeds to the war effort? This idea of Davis's was resolutely rejected by members of the Academy's board of directors. And Betty Davis was now certain that the Academy wanted a celebrity figurehead and not the indefatigable leader of men, which Betty didn't know how not to be. So she quit as president of the Academy. Betty would make some of her most beloved films over the course of the war, including Now Voyager and Mr. Skeffington. But without the Academy gig, she had some free time on her hands. So when actor John Garfield told her he thought there should be a movie world analog to New York's stage door canteen, where Broadway stars cater to visiting soldiers, Betty jumped into action. She rented a barn on Cahuenga, Kitty Quarter to Sunset Boulevard, which had been a series of nightclubs but was now in bad shape. Betty called it, One Step Below an Eyesore. She got every union in town involved, enlisting studio crewmen to use their off hours fixing the place up. Studio cartoonists painted murals on the walls, and she convinced her agent, Jules Stein, to put his muscle behind her. Stein was the ultimate secret power in Hollywood. Most people had never even seen him, but he had his fingers in reach of a lot of pullable strings. Stein organized a gala opening night for the canteen, at which they'd sell bleacher seats to stars at $50 a pop so that famous faces could watch and cheer as servicemen walked the red carpet into the club. They made $10,000 that night on the bleacher seats alone. Betty joked that it was such a scene that she couldn't even get in through the front door. She had to crawl in through the window. When a board was formed to run the canteen, Betty Davis was named president. And every account of the canteen's history says she worked tirelessly to keep the place afloat. Not just showing up nearly every night to work, but also spending hours on the phone each day, essentially bullying other Hollywood people into doing their part. Why was the Hollywood canteen so important to Betty Davis? It's worth noting that as a star within the stable of Warner Brothers, Betty was protected by the studio which had taken the most extreme anti-Nazi stance, ending its business with Germany as early as 1934 and actually encouraging its employees to join the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. This was incredibly rare in Hollywood, where most studios were resolutely apolitical. And it's also possible that Betty's relationship with William Wyler had made her more sensitive to what was going on in Europe. Wyler was a Jew born in German territory who had only immigrated in the 1920s because his cousin, Carl Lemley, had promised him a job. By the time Davis and Wyler were romantically involved, with Hitler on the warpath in Europe, Weiler was trying desperately to get the rest of his family out of harm's way. Maybe Betty saw this and was moved. But also, it's important to note that she wasn't exactly an anomaly. Many, many Hollywood stars were extremely active in the war effort. And of course, many male members of the Hollywood community enlisted, including William Weiler, who joined the Air Force and directed three combat documentaries. Betty would later say that she always wanted the lioness's share. She always wanted to win. Maybe when everyone around her started doing their part, her competitive spirit simply moved her to do more than her part. 
The basic principle of the canteen was that it was chiefly for enlisted men. No officers were allowed inside, and no civilians, and that it would be staffed entirely by members of the entertainment industry, all of whom were fingerprinted and identity checked by the FBI before being given an assignment, and all of whom worked on a volunteer basis. That said, participation was highly encouraged. Tuesday night at the Hollywood Canteen became Warner Brothers night. Thursday night was hosted by the RKO Starlets. If you were under contract to a studio, no excuse was a good excuse to not show up on your studio's night. All uniformed servicemen were welcome inside, and servicewomen, although the canteen mostly catered to men. And all meant all. In organizing a benefit for the canteen held at the night spot Ciro's, Betty Davis hired black performers, including the jazz violinist Stuff Smith, and she famously walked into the party with a black actor named Rex Ingram. Ciro's had always been a chiefly white place, and that night, Betty Davis single-handedly broke its color barrier. She also gave a speech that night, announcing that the canteen would be open to all races. One of her proudest accomplishments, she'd say later, was that the canteen had no quote-unquote colored section. Blacks and whites were allowed to mingle freely. Why not, she wrote in her memoir. The blacks got the same bullets as the whites did and therefore should have the same treatment. Segregation was the rule, not the exception, in 1942. Betty's declaration was monumental because all nightclubs for white people banned black people. A lot of public places were segregated. The army was segregated. There were tons of rules about what could and would and could not go on inside the Hollywood canteen. Everything was free to enlisted men, meaning admission, sandwiches, coffee, sodas, and cigarettes. No booze was served or permitted inside the canteen's doors. Hundreds of young known actresses and -and up-and-coming studio contract players were brought in to serve as hostesses. But there were strict regulations in place to make sure that their interactions with the enlisted men remained cordial, but professional. No canteen volunteer was permitted to leave the club with any guest, nor were they allowed to meet the men outside of the premises, or even exchange contact information. Each girl was even supposed to politely reject any guy who asked her to dance with him a second time. The idea was to circulate throughout the club, to dance with as many guys as possible, to widely disperse their vitality and beauty, but also to minimize the chances that any one guy would have the time to fall in love with any one girl. If a soldier begged to be able to write a letter to a hostess, she had a studio-sanctioned kiss-off in her pocket. She was permitted to give him a pre-printed slip with the address of her home studio. Essentially, these war-bound admirers were turned into manufacturers of fan mail, and the amount of fan mail received by any one star was used at this time as a metric of celebrity. There were a couple of cautionary tales to suggest the danger, emotional if not physical, in store for a girl who broke the rules and went out with a GI. A comparatively nice example of these cautionary tales involves one volunteer hostess named Meg Nisbet, who danced with a handsome cadet named Woody Cole. Despite having been indoctrinated into what she referred to as Betty Davis's rules, Meg just couldn't bring herself to reject Woody's invitation to meet him after hours on the corner of Sunset and Vine. They married in April 1943, and then Woody was sent overseas. 
where he was killed in combat in January 1944. Woody lost his life, and Meg lost her love, but they sacrificed for a good cause, and at least she got to keep his purple heart. Then there was the much darker story of Georgette Bauerdorf, an oil heiress and aspiring actress who, like Meg Nisbet, volunteered as a hostess at the canteen, but unlike Meg, Georgette apparently didn't pay much heed to Betty Davis's rules. She kept a date book with the names of servicemen who she had gone out with outside of the canteen, and in October 1944, she purchased a bus ticket to El Paso, Texas, where she planned to visit one of those enlisted men whom she had met at the canteen and exchanged private letters with for months afterward. But Georgette didn't make it to Texas. She was strangled in her Hollywood apartment on the night of October 12, 1944, and left by her killer in her bathtub. Her murder was never solved, although some have linked the Bauerdorf case to the most famous unsolved Los Angeles murder of that decade, that of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. There were exceptions, like the press coverage given to the unexplained death of Georgette Bauerdorf, and the coverage of a lawsuit brought by a dancer against the canteen when an overly aggressive jitterbugging GI literally threw her on her ass, breaking her tailbone and wrecking her career. She won that suit, by the way. But stories about the canteen were mostly about how the canteen was totally magical. Most stories about the canteen, in not just the Hollywood magazines, but also the mainstream, black, and even communist press, suggest that all of the rules kept the joint humming like clockwork, and that if anyone was moved to defy any of the rules, they were just a bad seed, barely worth mentioning. Most of the stories printed time and again are all about the stars as tireless efforts. Davis's near-nightly visits, Marlena Dietrich's habit of pitching in in the kitchen, Kay Francis driving 50 miles to a military hospital to pick up wounded men to bring them to the canteen. This was probably not the first time Kay Francis was accused of picking up multiple men in a night, although it surely would have been the first time her doing so was depicted as a chaste act of charity. The most extreme example of the kinds of stories told about the Hollywood canteen is the story that Hollywood told about the Hollywood canteen in the movie Hollywood Canteen. Hollywood Canteen literally has a cast of a thousand stars, many of them WB contract players. Betty Davis and John Garfield are featured most prominently, but the film's really about two soldiers, nicknamed Slim and Brooklyn, and played by Robert Hudden and Dane Clark. Slim and Brooklyn suffered insignificant injuries in the South Pacific and have a couple of days to kill in LA before reporting to San Francisco for new assignments. Brooklyn walks with a cane, and initially he only wants to drink away his pain. So he and boy next door Slim split up. After a full day of seeing the sights by himself, Slim ends up at a singularly unglamorous lunch counter, where he's told that he can eat for free at the Hollywood Canteen. Within a few minutes of arriving at the club, Slim has told everyone from Betty Davis to Barbara Stanwyck that the only star he really wants to meet is red-headed singer-actress Joan Leslie. John Garfield concocts a plan to essentially pimp Leslie out to Slim. In this scene, he and Davis let Leslie in on it. Well, what's up, Betty? Well, you know, we don't very often show favoritism. Yes. But there's a boy out front who was wounded in New Guinea and who's been shipped home after two years in the jungle. 
His doctor's given him an okay to report for his transfer next week, so he won't be here long. And all he asks of his leave is a look at you. Oh, well, that's easy. I'll give him a good look. Good. Fire, Joni. I fixed everything. I found an old hat check in my pocket with a number 77, and I gave it to the guy and made out like everybody had to have a check, see? For what? Well, the winning number gets a kiss from sweet Joni. Get it? Gee, I... Yeah. You're setting a bad precedent, Johnny. Well, this is something special. You go on up to the fingerprint room, and I'll take care of the rest. Are we going to be introduced first? I hope. <laughs> I think that's the least we can do. <laughs> The bulk of the film is set in the club, with the slim and Brooklyn narratives running through scenes built around stars and musical performers. There's a lot of hokum, including a good bit where Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet intimidate a G.I. Lorre accidentally, Greenstreet not so much. And there's a scene where the Andrew sisters perform a kind of plot song. I'm getting coins for my country at the Hollywood canteen. The hardest working junior hostess you've ever seen. I'm doing my bit down here for Uncle Sam. I'm a patriotic jitterbug. Yeah, yeah, that's what I am. I'm getting coins for my country. You should see the pounds fly. Eventually, Slim drags a skeptical Brooklyn to the canteen, and he's quickly turned around, to the point where later, while bunking down for the night, he imbues the canteen with magical healing powers. When we was mildewing in the jungle, I kind of resented these canteens and the guys that were lucky enough to be here instead of there. I won't resent it no more. And I used to figure that Hollywood was a place with all false fronts. Nothing false about them we've seen tonight. Gorgeous. Yeah, she certainly is. You know, I don't want to get sloppy about this, but it kind of got me. All them famous people being friendly and democratic. Democratic. Democracy. That's what it means, Slim. Everybody equal like tonight. All them big shots. Listening to little shots like me. Slim. What's the matter? I dance tonight! Quiet! No! Look! I don't need my cane no more! Hey! Hey, look! Listen, you guys! Look! I got rid of my extra leg! Look, will you? I left my cane at the Hollywood canteen! I left my... This is the most blatant, inelegant place where the movie achieves its propagandistic aims. But there are more complicated ways in which it communicates ideas. Later in the film, there's a celebration to welcome the millionth visitor to the canteen, which, of course, is slim. At the beginning of the scene, Garfield gives a speech in which he stresses both the collective effort required to mount the canteen and singles out Betty Davis, who gets to play humble. The whole motion picture industry pitched in to help. The girls from the studios volunteered to be junior hostesses. I can't finish this story without bringing to the mic the lady who was our boss, who worked harder than anybody to bring this canteen into being. Our first president, and still our president, get Betty Davis. Front and center. Look, what is it? To the millionth mad club? This is all for you. Well, what about? Come on and say thanks. Johnny could have said to to bring forth this very warm greeting. But whatever it was, I'm perfectly sure I don't deserve it. 
Then, when Slim is crowned the one millionth GI to walk through the doors of the canteen, Betty explains that he is both exceptional and representative of every serviceman. You didn't know you were somebody special, did you, Corporal? No, ma'am, am I? Yes, you're the millionth man to enter the Hollywood canteen. Gee, that's a, that's a lot of men. It is, and that's why we wanted to do something about it. And so we decided to let the man who was actually number one million celebrate for all the rest. As an expression of our gratitude to the men who've already come to the canteen and to those we hope will continue to come until the war is over. The studios and the merchants of Hollywood have contributed gifts as a, a symbol of their appreciation. And as the official representative of our first million men, Corporal Green, they're all for you. There's a hotel suite reserved for you. There's a car waiting at the back door for you. There's an evening at any nightclub in town. And every studio has cordially invited you to visit them. And last, but I don't think least, you may choose any actress in town as your date for the weekend. Of course, he chooses Joan Leslie. And this contrived setup blossoms into a real romance. In real life, this all would have constituted a major violation of the canteen's actual rules. But in the movie, it was essential to selling the idea that a soldier's visit to the canteen didn't have to be limited to a single night worth of polite interaction with the stars. In fact, a visit to the canteen could make his every fantasy come true. I had my doubts. The idea that the canteen was completely dry was the first thing that threw up red flags for me. But despite the frequent presence of stars now known to be pretty serious drinkers, including co-founder John Garfield, Kay Francis, Judy Garland, and Spencer Tracy, it seems like if anyone broke the rules and smuggled in a flask, it hasn't been recorded by history. But it turns out there were a number of things happening at the canteen that none of the organizers wanted anyone to know about in fear that these things could compromise or even just complicate its image as a force for good. Some of those things were relatively minor. For instance, the canteen was billed as the place where GIs would find themselves dancing with the stars. But there were only so many stars, and in order to meet the demand of the thousands of enlisted men who came to the canteen every week, many women were recruited to pitch in who were not even wannabe actresses, but secretaries, script readers, or even the wives of men who were on a studio payroll. And Meg Nisbet and Georgette Bauerdorf were not the only women who broke the no-fraternization rule. The image that the canteen tried to protect was maybe unsurprisingly balanced between Madonna and whore. A vintage example is a photograph of Rita Hayworth taken in the canteen's kitchen in a bathing suit and high heels, slicing up apple pie. This double act fits with the memories of MGM contract player Dorothy Morris, who recalled that the soldiers that she danced with seemed to be in need of comfort in more ways than one. Part of them was so scared, she said, and part of them was getting a hard-on. Some of those soldiers got the comfort they desired, although usually not from movie stars. The notable exception was the custodian of the no-fraternization rule, Betty Davis, who developed a relationship with a canteen visitor named Louis A. Riley, a corporal who was 12 years Betty's junior. The affair was serious enough that Betty visited Riley in Georgia, where he was stationed, and the two talked about marriage. 
But apparently, the affair fizzled through the mail, and in October 1945, Betty took her third husband, William Sherry. Riley later married actress Dolores Del Rio. There were other things that were being hidden that are a little more mind-blowing. Turns out, not only was the canteen staffed by volunteers whose identities had been recorded by the FBI, but throughout the three years the canteen was open, at least one active FBI secret agent conducted a covert operation on the premises. And the inciting incident for that surveillance seems to have been Betty Davis's announcement that the canteen wouldn't enforce segregation of blacks and whites. The existing FBI files available through the Freedom of Information Act indicate, as Sherry Tucker put it in her book Dance Floor Democracy, that the FBI was called to the case when intentional integration was announced, stepped up the case when it threatened to become policy, and exited the room when integrated dancing was casually tolerated, but not explicitly encouraged, mandated, or protected. The FBI files are full of notes documenting the canteen's private board meetings, where the topic of whether to ban or allow interracial dancing was apparently broached quite frequently. The FBI's concern with racial integration at the canteen stemmed not just from pure racism, although surely there was a lot of that too. But the FBI's real problem was that racial integration was considered a cause of Hollywood communists. The FBI suspected that there was a secret communist plot to bring white women to the canteen and have them dance with black men. And the FBI wasn't wrong. Bernard Gordon, a blacklisted screenwriter and proud communist activist, has confirmed that racial integration being the party's primary goal at that time, they did recruit both white and black women to come to the canteen and ask men of the opposite race to dance. So the FBI wasn't wrong to suspect that this was happening. They were just wrong in suggesting that it was a bad thing. They were just wrong in suggesting that the secret communist plot was evil. To be fair to the FBI, at this time when all of America, including its entertainment industry, was supposed to be uniting together to fight as one, the feds were highly sensitive to anything intended or which could be perceived to subvert and or undermine the war effort. But also, cataloging the activities of suspected Hollywood communists would prove useful in the future. Because, of course, once the war was won and the fascists were dealt with, communism was the next evil up for eradication. In fact, the FBI's big takeaway from the canteen investigation seems to be that they managed to create three lists. One listing people thought to be communists or communist sympathizers working within the canteen, including screenwriters Dalton Trumbo and Lester Cole and actor John Garfield, all of whom were later blacklisted, as well as vocal proponent of racially integrated dancing, Betty Davis. People thought to definitely not be communists included Betty's powerful agent, Jules Stein, Bob Hope, and Mary Ford, the wife of director John Ford, who was apparently so easily agitated by minor racial incidents at the canteen that she kept reporting them to the LAPD, making a nuisance of herself to the point that the police apparently told her husband that if his wife didn't like what was going on at the canteen, maybe he should keep her away from the canteen. The final list included names of people whose allegiance was indeterminate one way or another. People who, presumably needed to be watched further. 
The fact that none of this behind-the-scenes drama made it into most records of the canteen is a testament to the talents of Jules Stein, who guarded the canteen's image fiercely. He had brought his agency, MCA, to Hollywood in 1937, at a time when Hollywood was heading into a particularly bad PR period, as we discussed in our episodes about 1938. Essentially, the excessive glamour that the industry projected was being attacked for being out of touch with the way Depression-era audiences lived their lives. This was a charge that never totally went away, and as Stein saw it, the Hollywood canteen was a chance for him to align his company and the stars they represented with a massively popular, patriotic force for good, which would change the conversation. But only if he kept control over what kind of conversation people were having about the canteen. So it was Jules Stein who, when someone showed up drunk or was caught getting fresh on the dance floor, made sure the offender was delivered straight into the hands of the LAPD. It was Stein who tried to make sure quote-unquote chippies were weeded out of the potential hostess pool. And the FBI files show that it was Stein who was most vocal in discouraging the mixing of the races on the dance floor at the canteen, arguing that allowing black men to dance with white women could inspire a race riot that would cause the canteen to be shut down. In a sense, the Hollywood canteen, more effectively than the Oscars or any publicity campaign the industry had launched on behalf of itself to that point, was an advertisement for the best qualities of the movie industry, which downplayed or made invisible the aspects that were morally questionable. It was a site for the creation of propaganda, and some of that propaganda directly benefited the canteen's president. Betty Davis, a star who had become beloved for playing bitches, got to remake, or at least add to her legacy, the image of both an incredible patriot and also a civil rights pioneer. The fact that the canteen was created for photo ops wasn't inherently sinister. In that sense, it wasn't any different than any other site in town where stars and filmmakers honed their crafts. And in addition to that, the canteen was a legitimate place where young men could go and make memories that they would carry with them to their graves. If any of the servicemen who walked through the doors felt exploited by the Hollywood publicity machine, then that's another thing that's been lost to the dustbin of history. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode, like all of our episodes, was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Every episode has show notes, which include a list of books and magazine articles that we use for research, and all of the books link to Amazon where you can buy them. If you like us, please go to iTunes and rate and review us, and follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. My